Well, last Sunday, Pastor Ron led us in a study of Exodus 32, one of the darkest, bleakest chapters of the Bible, as far as I'm concerned. It's the incident of the golden calf. Aaron makes it, and all the people bow down to it, worship it, and celebrate it. It's almost like the fall of Genesis 3 all over again. And like Genesis 3 with its plush setting there in the garden with peace and the perfect presence of God. So Exodus 32 begins in a a season of happy times. Of course, it's not a garden. It's at the base of Mount Sinai in the wilderness. But Exodus 32 occurs in what was previously happy circumstances. Fulfillment on the rise, forward progress ahead, things looking encouraging and hopeful. And so when the rebellion in Exodus 32 comes, we're surprised, especially if we are reading it for the very first time. We might say, I didn't see this coming. This is shocking. How did this happen? Well, let me try to briefly explain why it's so shocking and should be shocking to us in case we're just used to it being there and used to where it is in Exodus. For 12 chapters previous to chapter 32, Moses has been on Mount Sinai meeting with God, receiving the law, receiving from God the instructions about the tabernacle and the priesthood and the sacrifices. But don't forget that during that 40-day period, there was at least a time when Moses came down. It's in Exodus 24. In fact, you might want to just turn there in your Bibles to see headings and remind you of those earlier days. In Exodus 24, Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments and some other laws as well and gives them to the people. It's in Exodus 24 that the covenant between God and his people was officially cut You could say the covenant was cut. Moses read the law. He told them the terms of the covenant. In verse 3, all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And so Moses read it again. Verse 7, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. Well, then Moses went back up to receive more from God. Remember, throughout it all, Mount Sinai was enveloped in smoke. There was thunder and light lightning, and the mountain quaked, and the people could not touch the mountain. And so you put all this together. They had the Ten Commandments. They affirmed their part in the covenant, and they had this visual, daily, scary reminder of God on top of Mount Sinai, not that far away. But with a drop of a hat, chapter 32, verse 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. That's shocking, right? If we read on, as we did last week, about the actual idolatry, it's even more shocking. 
God had rescued them from slavery so that they would serve him. God said he would bring them to Mount Sinai where there he would be worshipped. God was on Mount Sinai providing detailed instructions for exactly how he was going to dwell in the midst of his people. And they abandoned that God and turned to a stupid golden calf. They broke covenant with God. They violated at least the first three of the Ten Commandments. No other God before me, no graven images, do not take his name in vain, all up in smoke. And if Exodus 32 dramatically begins on a shocking theme, then it ends on an uncertain theme. Can this breach be repaired? Can the relationship between God and his people be fixed? God hints in chapter 32 that perhaps he'll just start over. He'll make a great nation out of Moses, verse 10. He did that with Noah. He sure could do it again. And the chapter ends with 3,000 slain, forgiveness denied, a plague upon the people, and that's it. Even Genesis 3, the fall, gives us a word of promise and hope. Exodus 32 doesn't. Well, the uncertainty of Exodus 32 carries over into Exodus 33 before we get to some exciting hope. Let's read Exodus 33 together. We'll actually get into chapter 34 just a bit later on, but for now we'll just read Exodus 33. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you've brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door, And watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up in worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp... His assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, 
But you've not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, so we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Then the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Well, the primary theme of our passage is God's presence. It's about God's presence. And the question that we could put on the lips of Moses, or the lips of the people for that matter, is this, is God with us? Going forward, will he be with us? In light of the golden calf debacle, will God remain with us? Well, we first have to see the trouble with God's presence. The trouble with God's presence, verses 1 to 11. That's the first of four points. By the way, I have two longer points and then two quicker points. Now, if you have a Bible that shows paragraphs to you, that can be useful in a passage like verses 1 to 11. There are three paragraphs in my Bible, and we'll take advantage of those extra breaks. Notice verses 1 through 3 go together, and they spell out God's new modified plan. Moses is told to lead the people away from Mount Sinai into the promised land. That land with all those people with the ites ending. In their name, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. This is the famous land that was promised long ago to Father Abraham in Genesis 15. A promise renewed again in Exodus Exodus 3. God says he will send an angel before them and he'll make the way for them. He'll give them the land. All very good news so far. But the second half of verse 3, that that dreaded but. But I'll not go up among you, God says, lest I consume you on the way. For you are a stiff-necked people, that is, a stubbornly sinful people. There is both mercy and judgment in that. 
It was merciful because they would, would be consumed by God's holy wrath if he went with them and they continued in their rebellion without atonement. But it was certainly judgment as well, and a rather shocking judgment. Again, God had been making amazingly intricate plans for his dwelling place in the midst of the people as they were to leave Mount Sinai. But now we're told an angel will go with you, not God himself. He'll give you the promised land, that's for sure. The golden calf incident didn't ruin that. But God will stay home. Now how would you take that news if you were the average Israelite? How would you take the news of abundant blessing without the God of blessing? I mean, all the protection, all the provision, it's as good as done. It's going to happen. Eventually, there will be peace in the land, but you don't get God's presence. John Piper often asks a similar question in many of his sermons. What if you could have a heaven with all of its blessings, family, relationships, recreation, no pain, no worry, no threat, no trouble, no strife, no sin, no sadness, no sickness, no threat. All of the blessings of the real heaven, but Jesus isn't there. Are you okay with that? I think some of us would say, ah, that sounds pretty good. Yeah, I'll take that. Now, we, we Christians know that's not the right answer. We know if God ever puts that test before us, we're not going to check that box, right? That's a test. But, but let yourself sort of feel your proneness to wander. Let yourself feel any real temptations to be content with God's blessings without the God of blessings. And forget heaven. How about now? Are we okay with blessings from God, abundant, rich blessings from God without God himself? We could ask, what is God to us? Is he the one that we got to deal with so that we don't have a really bad eternity once we die? You know, he's sort of the one broker you got to work with, and it's his terms or no terms, and so what are you going to do? You might as well work with him. Is he the one that determines whether we have stuff or don't have stuff, whether life is easy or life is hard, and so we might, might as well have him on our side lest we make him angry? Well, to refer to John Piper again, he has a book called God is the Gospel. God is the Gospel, meaning God is actually the reward we get in the Gospel. Forgiveness, that's the means by which we get God. We get restoration to him. And in Exodus 33, much to our surprise, the Israelites actually respond here in a positive way. With mourning. Verse 4, when the people heard this disastrous word that God wouldn't go with them, though they'd get the land, they mourned. Here's a bright spot. 
We don't know if it's true repentance, but it's a move in the right direction. They considered it a disastrous word. They mourned. No one put on his ornaments. Not Christmas ornaments. This is jewelry. And perhaps they took off their jewelry because this was clearly a moment of heaviness, of mourning. This is no time to gussy up. This is no time to look all fancy. And it's possible these ornaments were actually connected with idolatrous worship as well. Verse 6 says that they stripped themselves of these ornaments from this point on. They might have been the vestiges of Egyptian idolatry that still hung on their bodies until this moment. Verses 7 to 11 give us a paragraph on Moses in the tent of meeting. And let me just read it again since there are a number of complications and there are several layers of significance to it. So verse 7, now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud, the representation of God's presence, would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And we can stop there. The first complicated matter is what is this tent of meeting? It's complicated because the tent of meeting is a phrase for the holy of holies or the most holy place, the inner sanctum of the tabernacle that was discussed chapters before. It kept saying tent of meeting. That meant holy of holies or the most holy place. And this tent of meeting, though it shares the same name, is not the holy of holies. This is a single tent, not part of a tent structure called the tabernacle. And it's pitched outside the camp, unlike the tabernacle, which was eventually to be built and placed in the middle of the camp. No, the emphasis is clear. This is outside the camp, far off from the camp. That's repeated over and over in this paragraph. But a harder question is, when did this happen? When did Moses used to pitch this tent of meeting and meet with God? And there are a couple of possibilities. Perhaps this was back in the days of the wilderness before they got to Mount Sinai. So this would be Exodus 16 to 19. There's no mention of this tent of meeting thing in those chapters, but perhaps this was a regular thing. As they traveled in the wilderness, Moses would go outside the camp with this tent and meet with God. Or perhaps this is sometime after the whole golden calf debacle, after Moses had come down. Maybe it's before they actually departed from the base of Mount Sinai. Or perhaps it's the early days of traveling in the wilderness before the tabernacle is constructed. That happens in chapter 35. We'll get to that in due course. 
But it could have been Moses' regular practice in those days, after leaving Mount Sinai and before the temple was actually constructed. But more importantly is what took place in this tent of meeting. Something mind-blowing, if we understand it. Moses would pitch this tent, and the God of Mount Sinai, with all that thunder and lightning and smoke and fire and quaking, that God would enter in and the two, God and human, would talk. The Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. This doesn't mean that God has a face. This is what we call an anthropomorphism, and they're all over the Bible. Anthropomorphism just means in human form. And so in this case, God condescends to our limited understanding of his infinite ways by communicating in finite and human-oriented kind of ways. The Bible can speak of God's hands. He doesn't have hands. It can speak of his arm. He doesn't have an arm. It can speak of his eyes. He doesn't have eyes. It's that he sees, right? And here, with face-to-face language, it's seeking to capture that astounding, unparalleled personal relationship and communication between God and Moses. They spoke like friends who sat down across from each other. The Israelites get how special this is. They would watch from afar. They'd watch Moses enter in. They'd see that pillar come and go to the door. They would just marvel. They would worship from afar. Now, what's the point of this somewhat odd kind of paragraph? Well, it shows us Moses' very special, very unique relationship with God. It contrasts Moses with the people. Moses is there meeting with God. The people are here. God is there not with us. They watch from afar. Of course, it's a bright spot for the people. They're celebrating what they see. They're celebrating what's happening. They're celebrating Moses' intercession for them. They, they know, perhaps today, Moses will bring my question to the Lord, and I'll get an answer from the Lord about this predicament in my life. And there's also a bit of prolonged uncertainty going on here in the unfolding of the narrative. Pastor Ron mentioned last week to take note in Old Testament narrative when the story picks up and when it slows down. The uncertainty is prolonged here. What's going to happen? What about this modified plan of verses 1 through 3? How will God respond to mourning people in verse 4 and 5? What will come of these special meetings between God and Moses in the tent of meeting? Well, perhaps what took place is something along these lines of verse 12 and following. This is, secondly, the plea for God's presence. The plea for more of God's presence. As astounding as that tent of meeting kind of thing was, Moses actually takes it up a notch. He asks God to show him his ways, verse 13. 
that I may know you. Uh, Certainly implied is that I might know you more. He says, verse 18, show me your glory. I think there are a few reasons in the text for Moses asking these bold requests of God. I can sort of put them in Moses' mouth like this. God, I need a sign that you are with me in this mission. I need a sign that you're with me in this mission. Verse 12, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. Aaron? Aaron? Mr. Golden Calf? The ringleader of that debacle? An angel? Verse 2? An angel, Lord? Is that the plan? I'm sure the angel is worthy and capable and probably even impressive looking. I think implied here is, God, how about you? You! That's where it goes. But at first, Moses is asking God for a sign that God is still with the mission. Is he still in the project? He's asking for a sign. Now, just tuck that away. Noodle on that, as Scott Minema likes to say. Signs aren't always good things when people ask for them of God. There are plenty of stories in the Bible where someone asks God for a sign because they feel like they need more assurance about something God has already said, and God isn't pleased with their request for a sign. Jesus wasn't pleased when they said, oh yeah, show us a sign. He said, "Ah, Noah, there's your sign. Jonah, there's your sign. But here, Moses' bold request for God to show him something, that God is still in this project, isn't met with rebuke which probably speaks to how closely they were, how much Moses had come to learn of God's heartbeat. They were friends. A second reason for Moses' bold request to see more and be shown more would be along these lines. God, I need to know that you're still with your people. This has been in question. Chapter 32, verse 10 God said, I will make a great nation of you, Moses. Chapter 33, verse 2, remember, I will send an angel before you, you, Moses, and the people, but I will not go up among you. And then chapter 33, verse 14, God says, Moses, my presence will go with you, singular, Moses. I will give you, Rest, singular, Moses. You just see the play back and forth. Verse 15 and 16 have Moses responding to God and responding to God's singulars. You, Moses. Moses responds with plurals. If your presence won't go with me, don't bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight? I and your people. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people. Consider what kind of people Moses was interceding for here. What kind of people Moses was trying to 
get to to be included in God's plan still here. These are the people who not long ago said, who is that Moses after all? We forgot about him. He's probably wandering somewhere in the sand. Let's get on with a new God, new idols. Let's go. What care and concern Moses shows for them here. Instead of saying, you want to start over with me, God? That sounds pretty good. In the past, Moses has occasionally complained this insufferable people. He's been frustrated with them. This Moses that at times doubted God. Here, he he represents the heart of God so well, even to God. Notice the God-centeredness of his rationale. He says in verse 16, how do we know that we're your people? Is it not By you being with us? Isn't it not you going with us? Isn't that what makes us distinct from among the nations? He's essentially pleading with God on the basis of God's future reputation among the nations. Something he knows that God is already interested in. Chapter 9, verse 16. All this is happening that the name of the Lord may be proclaimed in all the earth. Moses is tapping into that as he asks God to remain with the people and go with the people. And a third basis for his request to see more and be shown more is along these lines. God, I personally just want to see more and know more of you. Verse 13, that I may know you. That I may know you. Verse 18, please show me your glory. Again, what boldness, what eagerness. It's like David in so many of his psalms. Psalm 27, David says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. He says to God, You have said, God, seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. This is bold, personal, intimate prayer. And I'm sure David learned something of it from Moses in our chapter here. So how does God respond? Verse 17, God says, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. So God will show Moses more than Moses has seen before. The details are spelled out in verses 18 to 23 of chapter 33. We're told that Moses, like any man, cannot see God's face. He cannot fully take in all of God's glory. He will be consumed. It's like enjoying the sun, but you can't go swimming on it. You can't go stand on it. You can't get that near. You're not even supposed to look directly at it. You're supposed to benefit from all that's around it. And so God gets this elaborate plan. You're going to go in this cleft of the rock, and I'm going to put my hand over you to guard you from my glory. And then as I pass by, I'll proclaim my name. And and as I've passed by, then I'll remove my hand, and you'll see what's called here the back of God. Like the face of God, 
God doesn't have a back. Well, we don't know exactly what this meant, what it looks like. D.A. Carson puts it like this, that Moses would see the trailing edge of the afterglow of the glory of the Lord. That's what we'll see in chapter 34 in just a bit. For now, we're just taking in this question Moses' plea, can I see more? Will you show me more? Show me something. Give me a sign. Show me your glory. God says, I'll show you my goodness. I'll protect you and let you see as much as you can see. But it's not everything. Far from it. Will God be with his people? Yes, apparently. This very thing that you've spoken, Moses, I will do. And that's why after this point, there is no more mention of this tent of meeting. And that's why after this point, not long after, the tabernacle begins to be built. It's chapter 35. It's coming soon. And at this point, you might say, well, then, why did God let things play out like this? Why all this rigmarole? Why all this drama? Why all this roller coaster stuff? I might not go with them. And he goes with them. I might not forgive them. But then eventually there's forgiveness and restoration and the covenant renewed. Well, it's not that God changed his mind. We know that. We know God is omniscient, he knows the future. But sometimes he lets things play out in a dramatic way so that we fuller understand what's going on and so that certain people in the story are moved in different ways to do his will. You see, God planned all along that he would remain with his people. God knew all along that he would one day be in the wilderness. He would one day be in the midst of the people with the tabernacle. He would one day be in the promised land with his people. He would one day reside in a temple for his people. But he also planned all along for Moses at this point, to boldly step in with great faith to plead for the people that God might answer his plea and God's will be done. C.S. Lewis once said, prayer doesn't change God, it changes me. The circumstances here were ripe for Moses to shine. And he did. This was Moses' finest hour. Again, that one Moses who at times doubted God's call, refused God's call for chapters on end. That Moses who was too self-focused, too timid, too weak. The Moses who complained about the people more than once to God. He now is God's man doing God's will and representing God's heart back to God. As if God needed it, no, no. Not for his will to be done, but for the drama of his will to unfold through his man. He's going to answer Moses' request for Moses' sake. He'll forgive the people. He'll restore the relationship. He'll renew the covenant, not on account of the people, but on account of Moses. That's clear. Verse 17, I will do it, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Oh, this is that 
classic picture of substitution. The people don't deserve it, but Moses deserves it. The people will get blessing on account, not of themselves, but of, on account of Moses. Now there's a line that I skipped over in verse 19 that you may have noticed that we haven't talked about yet. And I skipped over it, not to avoid it, but to give some particular attention to it now. The second half of verse 19, God says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now, if you look down in your Bibles, you'll notice that that, in its context, seems a little strange. What's before and what's after seem fairly positive. You might wonder what it's doing here, what God was after here. It sounds like the second half of verse 19, it could go either way. But God is saying yes to all of Moses' requests. So why is this here? Well, I think while God is saying yes, he's also providing a reminder that you shouldn't presume upon his grace. It doesn't always go this way. 3,000 were just executed at the end of chapter 32. God will go with his people, but not because he has to. God will dwell with them, but not because he's forced to. You can just think of the whole of the picture of salvation in time and eternity. There will be a multitude which no man can number in heaven at the end of time. But there will be a hell. There is great redemptive effort in the salvation of sinful human souls. But God never provided a plan of salvation for fallen angels. Ever thought about that before? We think it's a given. Yeah, we fell, we sinned, but of course God would make a plan. He, he, he's God, he's good and he's wise, and so of course he can make a plan for our salvation. And he did, praise him for it. But don't presume, fallen angels never got that. Behold the goodness and severity of God. Exodus 33, verse 19, is a word about God's freedom to save or not save. That's why Paul quotes this verse in his famous, or according to some, his infamous exposition of election in Romans 9. He says, God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now in just a bit, we're going to get to the fullness of God's mercy and talk about that in all of its warmth and encouragement and its great welcome to sinners like me. But some of us need to hear that there is freeness in God to save or not save. You need not presume upon his mercy. You must not. If you think 
Dealing with God will go something like this. Ignore him for as long as you can, and then on your deathbed, you'll do business with him. You may not get that chance, and you're not in charge of getting there. We, we don't come to this God willy-nilly. We don't come to this God on our own terms. We don't snap our fingers and say, okay, I want you to be nice to me now. It's not like a, our God is not like a grandparent. I, I love talking to people who are, you know, a few years into grandparenthood and they tell me stories about how, yeah, it's the best. It's all the good stuff and none of the hard stuff. You know, I don't have to say no. I have a friend who, he says to his kids, your job is to say no to your kids. My job is to say yes. <laughs> And some of us think of God like that. He can only say yes. He sometimes says no. But thirdly, there's an experience of God's presence that takes place in chapter 34, and it causes us to be greatly encouraged. So now, we'll skip verses 1 through 4. You'll see that those are about the renewed Ten Commandments and new tablets of stone. We'll deal with those in upcoming weeks. But verses 5 to 9 give us the actual experience of God's presence that was foretold at the end of chapter 33. And so these verses go like this. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Well, notice the connection between God's glory and presence on the one hand and his name that is proclaimed on the other. Moses asked to see God's glory. God said, I'll show you my goodness. And by that, he meant the tail end of the comet trail of God's presence and glory. But he also said that as he passed by, he would proclaim his name. His name, the Lord, Yahweh. Remember Moses got that in Exodus 3. Who am I supposed to say I'm representing? God says, I'm Yahweh. I am who I am. Well, here now is the longer version of God's name. Here's his fullest name. All the middle names, all the prefixes, all the suffixes. The Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Three words for sin. I don't know why there are three different words right in a row just to say he gets them all. He covers it all. 
He's slow to anger. So I said some here today need to ponder that God is free to dish out his grace as he chooses in his own will, not according to your will. Some need to hear that. And others here today need to hear how open his welcome is, how kind his grace is, how merciful and gracious, how slow he is to anger. He is not a God who flies off the handle. He is not a God who you mess up once and that's it, you're done. He's a God who's patient and kind. His steadfast love and faithfulness, it flows like, like milk and honey flow through Canaan. He forgives iniquity, transgression, sin, all of it, every kind. If you'll come to him, if you'll trust in him, if you'll seek his goodness, pray that he would show you his mercy and even show you more of his glory. Pray that humbly, but pray that as well boldly because he's this kind of God. This is his name. Names in our culture don't really mean much. I think Ryan means little king. And the only time that has ever proved to be useful was um, in college. I liked this girl named Sarah Abbas. We were in the library and I said, oh, Sarah, doesn't that mean princess? She said, yeah, it does. I said, well, mine means little prince. And she went, oh. I didn't know at the time that that sort of got her, but it did. And she began to look my way somewhat. And otherwise, our names mean very little. Our kids have been named after movie stars and Anne of Green Gables and all kinds of weird things. But I love our kids. Still the same. But here's my point. In Bible cultures, names were everything. This is the person. This is who he is. This is how he reveals. This is the experience that Moses needed. An experience not of just, ooh, my heart was fluttered there. That was interesting. I felt God. He saw God. He heard from God. He got specifics about the character of God. This is the God that we need. This is the God that can get them through the land. This is the God that can get you through your problems. This is the God that can get us all the way to heaven. Which leads, fourthly, to the progression of God's presence. There's a progression. You see, God's presence among a people is a mega theme stretched across the whole Bible. It has ups and downs along the way, but generally some progress. You just think of how each little pocket of the story can sort of chart somewhere in a degree of God's presence among his people. So the garden before the fall was perfect peace with God. It was presence. They walked with God in the cool of the day. But then sin entered in and they were thrown out. And you go a long ways in the Bible before God begins speaking to people and meeting with people and showing himself to people. There's a bit with Noah, then later with Abraham, a little bit more with his kids and grandkids, but a whole lot more when we come to Exodus. God shows up. God reveals. God is with his people. God will tabernacle among them. One day, that tabernacle will become a perfect, well, temporary, but, but more 
permanent building for God's presence called the temple in Jerusalem. That temple will be destroyed. The people will be carried away out of the land into exile. It's a removal, in a sense, of God's presence. It's judgment. They return from the land and rebuild another temple. But unlike the first temple in Solomon's day when God's presence clearly entered into it, they build the second temple in the days of Nehemiah. There's no cloud. There's no glory. Did God go in? We don't know. And along, around the same time, the prophets of the Old Testament begin talking about God's presence in these new, expansive, unthinkable ways. Ezekiel 37, my dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Or Habakkuk 2.14, one day the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord like waters cover the sea. In other words, complete saturation someday. And then we turn the page to the New Testament. And we hear an angel speaking to a young pregnant woman. You shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Or John 1, verse 14, John writes, And the word, that is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, it's hard to chart this in English Bibles, but scholars point out that grace and truth in the Greek of John 1 is probably echoing the Hebrew of Exodus 34. They are translated steadfast love and faithfulness. And it's not just a linguistic connection. You've got the thematic com- connection of seeing glory. Moses said, show me your glory. God said, I'll give you a little bit. But in Jesus, we have seen the glory of God from the Father. Hebrews says he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Of course, that glory was veiled in his very ordinary, very human flesh. He wasn't glowing. And so most people didn't notice that it was God's glory right before their very eyes. It was veiled in flesh, it was veiled in poverty, it was veiled in his rejection, and it was certainly veiled at the cross. But Jesus said that the cross was his moment of glory. John 12, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, he's talking about the cross, isn't he? He then prays, now my soul's troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name in the cross. A voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it. Again, you know, in our own, we we look at a Savior who was crucified upon a cross and we say, 
that's not it. That can't be it. An ancient piece of graffiti mocked the crucifixion as a crucified donkey was drawn. And it said, this man worships his God. How stupid is that? A crucified Savior. But to those who are being saved, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, the cross is glory. It's grace. It's redemption. That's atonement. That's salvation. That's how God would show and demonstrate all of those things in his name. Steadfast love, forgiveness of all sin. How would it happen? In Christ, upon the cross, and now interceding for us. If we believe in that Savior who died for our sins upon the cross, if we see the cross as glory and not doom or foolishness, then now we learn in John 17, as we read earlier, Jesus prays for us. He intercedes for us. He intercedes better than Moses' best day. He does it right now for you with your problems in mind. Stand in awe of this. I grew up singing a small chorus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Turn your eyes to Christ if you haven't yet. See your need for a savior. The only way you can get to God and experience his presence is through Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. In his presence, we're told in the Bible, is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. We don't get the fullest version of that until much later in a new heaven and new earth. One day, we're told in Revelation 22, they shall see his face. Well, didn't Jesus pray in John 17? One day, Lord, I want them with me that they may behold my glory. That's what's ahead. That's the fullness of joy. That is pleasures forevermore, unchanging. But we get a taste of it, even now in this life, as we get to experience the presence of God in the spirit who indwells us and gives us joy and all the other fruit of his spirit. Reread for yourself, if you need encouragement, John 14 and John 16, or Romans 8, which give us Things you wouldn't otherwise know about the Holy Spirit indwelling us on a daily, moment-by-moment basis. Let's marvel at the intimacy of God's presence with us and the constancy of God's presence with us. What Moses got to enjoy in the tent of meeting, however often that happened, is not quite what we enjoy in the permanent, ongoing, everywhere indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Stand in awe. Enjoy that. Take comfort in it. Occasionally say to yourself, like the Apostle Paul did in 2 Timothy 4, at my defense, no one stood with me, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. 
Consider the privilege of prayer. We don't go out to a tent of meeting to pray. You don't have to go into a church building and light a candle to get God to hear you. If you're in Jesus, you can pray. Whenever, wherever, and whoever you are. There is a great democratization of God's grace and glory this side of the cross. He had his time for special people like Moses, privileged to be mediator and experience things that no other Israelite in those days did. But every Christian now can ask God to show more of himself, more in his word. Every Christian now can go to God in prayer, casting burdens on him and asking him, well, to do things according to his glory and for our good. Let's pray for that now. Oh, Lord, we thank you again for your word, and we stand in awe of it. I'm certain I did not do it justice today, but you, Lord, speak. We feel inadequate knowing that there are different needs and different people. Some need to be sobered to remember that you are a holy God. Some here, Lord, need to be strengthened with joy by your steadfast love and faithfulness and assured of your promises to do them good. In it all, Lord, we pray you would be with us. And we thank you for all of your many promises, Lord Jesus, even in just the New Testament, to be with us, to do us good, to strengthen us, to equip us. We thank you for it all in your name. Amen.